Welcome back to the podcast. I hope you are all enjoying. This week's guest is James McMahon. James McMahon is my third guest that I spoke to that works for the NME. We spoke about growing up, his education and his jobs and how that got him into NME. We spoke about all of his podcasts, which he has many. His latest one is called Spook. He also does one called the James McMahon Music Podcast. He does one called Shame. And he does a football one called Can We Not Knock It? And the other podcast he does is called OCD Chronicles. The reason he does OCD Chronicles is because James is a sufferer of OCD himself. We touched on OCD and at the end of the podcast we we chose his four heroes to come for dinner and what he would cook them. I hope you all enjoy guys. I'll be back again next week with another fabulous guest. Thanks very much James McMahon for coming on my podcast today, Time for Heroes. Um, If people aren't aware of you James, you're a writer for the NME for many years and you do about 15,000 different podcasts. (laughs) So we'll just start off with you as a nipper, what life was like growing up, where you grew up and uh, education, stuff like that and how you came to be in the profession that you're in. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's very very formal. I feel like I'm... uh... I feel like I'm being interviewed for a job. Um, yeah, no, I was. So I grew up in Doncaster in South Yorkshire. Um, went to a comprehensive school in a little village called Armthorpe, which is where home is. Um, went to university in Sunderland. Uh, was music nuts from just sort of uh, the get go, really. I uh, was always super creative, did fanzines and things at school, um, probably at the detriment of school. Uh, was in bands, everything was music. Um, I think I probably first read The Enemy when I was pretty sure the first issue of The Enemy I ever got was the the Kirk Bain, uh, like the week after Kirk Bain died. And it was just, you know, that's so that's 94, I'm 14 at that point. You know, obviously, years before the omnipresence of the internet, just the total gateway to a different world, um, far beyond my little pit village. Um, and I, there was not really much I wanted to do, really, with my life other than find my way to the enemy. Um, you know, it was a scrap and really quite difficult, to be honest, to get there. And But then I did, and um, I was staff for I think six years freelancing for probably eight or nine um, still have a relationship with what enemy is today still write for them sporadically um, and university was uh, university was um, sort of just a way to kind of get away from home like not in a sort of a kind of a Bronski beat way or anything like that. It wasn't kind of a, it wasn't kind of, I was like, I was running, but definitely felt like I needed something more than yeah. Armthorpe and Doncaster when I was, uh, when I was 18. So I went to university 
and I was like I say, I was still doing fanzines, and and uh, I was in a band called Mavis, um, who made a few records and stuff like that. But when I was there, I I was really kind of quite. I got quite kind of into kind of underground music by that point, um, and started. A, I was quite. I was really inspired by a record label from Newcastle that was called Slamped that were, I mean, I, I suppose they're most notable that they put out the first Kanicki single and uh, put out records by the Yummy Fur, um, who are an amazing um, kind of lo-fi indie band from Glasgow who sort of still exist in some form today. But uh, what they did really inspired me, and I used to do an organisation called Boya, which uh, put on weekly... Uh, like weekly gigs and club nights and did a fanzine, did a radio show and kind of built this bit of a community in Sunderland, uh, this kind of music community that was really kind of because there wasn't that much happening in Sunderland at the time. So it was almost kind of, well, you know, if it's not there, you kind of got to make it. And that was definitely a kind of DIY ethos that I'd got from doing fanzines. And, uh, it was really exciting for a few years, you know, bands like Field Music and Future Heads and um, kind of bands that went on to kind of do other things or um, Golden Virgins or the Motorettes, um, kind of people who went on to be in Frankie and the Heartstrings, a band called The State Vegas, who are kind of like the best kind of emo-y punk band that no one really knows about. And, you know, they all sort of used to play my club and, that kind of coincided with me getting my first piece of work for the enemy, and then I kind of became like their person in the northeast. And um, yeah, I suppose that's kind of my formula of years right. uh, covers really. Did I, did I get the job? Yes, you get the job. Certainly. Oh, fantastic, fantastic. Let's talk about let's talk about money later. <laughs> so um, obviously, being being in the northeast, I was going to ask you that whether you you became an enemy's guy up there. So you you became quite. Um, friendly with future heads as you still still mates with him now yeah um it it was always me and ross really who's the guitarist um you know i have memories of him coming up to me at a, a boy at night with a, a demo for his then band milo and kind of being quite excited about the idea of playing boy you know it was something that people wanted to do at that point and um yeah you know we hit it off man you know like my friendship with ross in the early days was quite unlike kind of any friendship I'd really had up to that point, really. Just, uh, you know, he's a little bit younger than me. He's a couple, I think he's two years younger than me, but, you know, he's uh, quite a sensitive dude and, you know, it was very different to the kind of boys I'd grown up with and a bit more like kind of the, the kind of guy I am. And, um, yeah, you know, like he was groomsman at my wedding, um, you know, whenever that band kind of comes to town, like I'll always go hang out with them. And um, my, I met my wife via the Future Heads. She used to work for their management company, or she still does work for their management company, but she doesn't work so closely with them anymore. And um, yeah, no, totally. Uh, and I, you know, really kind of, I don't know, you know, like uh, there was a guy called Pat Long, a fellow enemy journalist kind of a bit of a mental figure, really. He's sadly not with us anymore. 
But he used to say this thing, you know, about freelancers, you know, if you were kind of a stringer for enemy, you know, the almost part of your job was, you know, you were almost like A&R, really. It was like, that was your job, you know, to sort of bring bands that maybe we didn't know about, you know, to uh, to the enemy. And definitely Future Heads was, they were kind of my, my cause, really, like in the early years. Yeah. So, like, as, like I spoke to, obviously, uh, some of your colleagues, as I said, Anthony Fonten and Mark Bowman, and, like, obviously, Anthony was big on the Libertines, so was that the hang then? Did you, were you all kind of, to the extent, kind of fighting to get your band across? Yeah, well, it just felt like that was our, it kind of just felt like that was... I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not 100% sure that's actually kind of what it's like anymore. I mean, I do think the culture of music magazines is different. Uh, you know, there's so there's so many less music magazines that exist that when I started out, um, you know, music media is in a bit of a different place. But I might be totally wrong, but it definitely felt like in those days it, part of the tradition that I was joining was that, you know, you were a music fan with kind of your causes that you were almost there to champion really um yeah and that was and I, I, you know i don't know i i did that probably more than most um and and sometimes got a bit frustrated at places i worked at that that wasn't more of a thing that people did but um yeah no that's something that i think it was always just that thing you know you're always aware at enemy that of people like kind of paul morley that you know used to champion uh, you know, Manchester bands, whether that was Joy Division in, in the beginning or, you know, someone like Simon Williams who, you know, loved new music so much he went off and formed Fierce Panda Records uh, and that almost became more of what he did than be a writer and, you know, obviously Steve Lamarck and, you know, I can list loads of names, but yeah. it just felt like you were kind of part of that tradition really and, you know, my thing for a long time was, was, was the North East. And then, to be honest, because I'm into quite noisy music, um, I, want, I don't want to say rock because that's a bit, you know, what, what, do, what does someone really mean by that? But I was kind of like, you know, the guy that would put music on the enemy stereo and everyone would be like, okay, we're going for lunch now for a while. So uh, that was that, that was my thing kind of after that, really. What you said, dear, about the, you don't you don't know if, um, if the music journalism still kind of like that. It does... There is that extent where I kind of think it's missing. We're missing like a good magazine like the NME. Obviously, it's still there on uh, the internet, but it's not the it's not the same because I, I was I bought NME every week along with Melody Maker as well, and yeah, sometimes I'd even stretch to Q or Select or whatever as well. But there's there just doesn't seem to be the same stuff out there, and. I mean that sort of stuff. People, I would go and I'd buy all the records and buy the clothes that the bands are wearing. You, you just want to be like the bands, but it just doesn't seem to be the same anymore. Yeah, totally. You know, I mean, you know, t- as as the years turn, you know, a lot of progress comes with that. But certainly, the demise of the British music press is something that makes me quite miserable, um, and even sort of just. A lot of the style of writing about music doesn't really exist so much anymore, and that makes me, you know, that makes me sad, you know, because it was a good thing, you know. Um, my life was 
my life has changed irrevocably. Let me say that again, irrevo- irrevocably, by by the music press. You know, I can't even imagine what my life would have been like if I hadn't walked into a newsagent and picked up a copy of the Enemy, and it was just it's just hard to say. Really, it was just like it blew my head off. You know, just re- just reading, writing like that about music, it just blew my head off. And um, yeah, no, it's definitely missed. And the thing is, is you know, I, I don't think that. I don't think that it's not something that could exist now. You know, I think there's loads of problems with uh, almost like the infrastructure around magazines. Like, you know, news agents are barely a thing anymore. Like, if you go into the magazine section of a supermarket, magazines are treated with almost disdain the way they're sort of flung around and yeah. uh, piled on top of each other and it's so hard to find things. And, you know, so there's a lot of stuff that. <laughs> is wrong like with the magazine industry but i i still think there are people who want to who want to read about music in a certain style of writing yeah that they hold and tear out pages and put them on the wall and um well that's you know, why i mean see if you look on ebay and things like that you can buy all the old copies and things like that people still want them yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, no, it's and you know, it's I I never saved everything I ever wrote. Uh, I've got bits and bobs, but I never saved everything. And um, you know, it's kind of weird. Like I got some grief recently online from some fans of a band of something I'd written twenty years ago, and okay. it was just like I don't know. It was there was a sort of a uh, there was a love or a sort of a rush to defend the acts I was writing about, which I sort of don't really kind of find on the things that filled the void left by the demise of the music press, you know, like, um, you know. Do you think <sighs> there's any way, like, see the way, see the way music is now? Music's so throw away. A band can release an album and if, if it doesn't hit straight away, the label drop them and they're, forgot a bit so do you think that's kind of i mean yeah i mean i I think that i think it's probably a little bit of a danger to sort of romanticize a lot of the past you know like i think that you know i sort of came of age like during Britpop, and there's loads of bands that kind of came out around that time that just you know did it did a couple of singles and then disappeared um or bands that were, you know, had number one records, released records, and then sort of fell off the face of the earth. So, like, the idea of music being disposable is isn't a new thing at all. But I feel like I feel like we I feel like music has less meaning than it did. In the sense that music is almost and I, I'm not, I'm not saying this about me or you, you know, because here we are on a Monday morning talking for a podcast, you know, like that's not something that like normal people do, but uh, like, you know, music to a lot of people is just another thing, you know, it's just another thing that they like. And I think you could, but I think you could probably say the same about, you know, film. Um, I think you could maybe even say the same thing about video games. There's just a lot of everything. And, things come and go very quickly and i'm very interested in the idea of how you give music more meaning again 
you know, people are making great music still. Like that never stops. And people are making interesting music. And, you know, that never stops. And people are making music that are weird and strange and dress cool and, you know, talk and sing about things that are that are more than just I like this girl, you know? Like yeah. music is music is everything that ever ever was, but it's almost like how the challenge I think and what I'm interested in and to a degree, you know, is kind of what I'm trying to do with when I still write about music now or the podcast I make or I run this organization called Spook, which is to be honest, very similar to what Boyer was when I was a lot younger, which is trying to you know, it's a little record label. It makes videos. Um, I've got a Substack that where I write about music in the way that I want to read writing about music. Like you know, and that's that's my own little sort of um, you know drop in the ocean, really. But I do think that as music fans, there is that challenge that music shouldn't just be something that is throwaway. Like music should matter a lot more than that. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's it. I, and I know it does. It does live in the hearts of people like me and you and my pals and things like that. But I, I get where you're coming from. I mean, I can get into the work and there's people that just have music on as background. They don't actually have any favourite music or anything. It's just a thing. I don't know if you can trust these people. Uh, <laughs> so. it's, fun, it's funny, actually. I was, it's funny. I was, I was in an Uber the other day and... Uh... I was, I was in, oh God, it was Saturday, yeah. Was, I was in the Super on Saturday, and the guy was like playing like one of these kind of easy listening stations, um, you know, where just everything sounds like mush. And I'm not saying that like if you're in an Uber all day driving people around, you necessarily want to be listening to like I don't know, Square Pusher or Shellac or something, you know, horrible and abrasive. But it does kind of blow my mind really when people where music's just like this it's just there you know yeah but i don't know i don't know you know i mean i i also think as well you know like there's music which is just there that i love you know like the beatles is you know the beatles are almost like as omnipresent as air and water and um you know i, I love like the carpenters or i love like abba like that music is incredibly popular but I don't know. For me, it's not. For me, it's not really a criticism of the music itself. Like it's kind of just like the the way the world treats music. That's more of like my irritation and what I would like to do something about. Yeah. So it's maybe like marketing techniques or something. Maybe need to change in some way. Actually, it's the cult. It's the culture. Like you know, I I worked at Kerrang like for six years and. Uh, I used to do a lot of market research, like about the magazine, like kind of what the readers thought we were doing right or wrong or whatever, you know. And like I'm a guy that you know did fanzines and into punk rock, and you know the phrase market research feels really gross, but it was like kind of one. It was kind of the fav- my favorite thing about the job, really, in lots of ways, because you got to meet people like I was when I was fourteen, fifteen, and. They were so passionate about the music that they loved. You know, there was no different. Like, if if you drop them into my world when I was fourteen, or drop me at fourteen into that room, there would have been no difference between me and the kids I was speaking to. And they loved 
I mean, you know, the music they loved necessarily wasn't what I I loved, but the way that they thought about it and the way that they spoke about it was no different at all. But it was just the infrastructure around it. Like there wasn't, for example, there wasn't a you know a, a, a focal point in their week for music like there was for me and Top of the Pops, or there wasn't. You know, obviously, you know, at Kerrang we were trying to do this, but there wasn't like that music press that would shape the identity of a band and kind of explain what it all meant. You know, there wasn't someone on the radio that, again, was that focal point, like a Eden Session or a John Peel or a Mark Radcliffe or whatever. Like these, all of this stuff just didn't exist anymore. And it was like, it was like they still wanted it, but it just wasn't there, which sort of gives me a bit of hope really that, it's not like the nature of music fans has changed. It's the infrastructure of how music is brought to people. Yeah, that, that's a, a valid point. Joe, obviously, you mentioned you worked for Kerrang as well. What happened after Kerrang? What you didn't know? Uh, well, when I left Kerrang, which was 2017, I, I'd been there for six years, and uh, I, I'd always had... I don't know whether you can quantify it quite like that, but like you know, I have I have OCD. I talk about OCD quite a lot, and that it wasn't like a. It took me a long time to realise that the things that I struggled with in life w- was OCD, and therefore I didn't know how to treat it. Um, and I'd always sort of, you know, kind of kept it at bay by working very very hard, but uh, things things got too much. Uh, when I was, I think I was 37, yeah, 37, that's 2017, left this job that had been all I'd done for most of my 30s. Um, A lot about that job I didn't like. Um, And just had a really, really low point where I was kind of forced to really look at the things I found difficult about living. And... um, I did that from a place of being quite ill for a few years, and I was still writing. I mean, a lot. Of, I mean, I was I was vocal about how I was feeling because I'm I'm just like that. But a lot of people wouldn't know how bad it was. But I was still working. You know, I was still still writing for the. You know, I was still writing for Enemy or the Guardian or Face or a Big Issue. I was writing for loads of you know loads of cool people. But I I was I was kind of living in hell really, yeah. and. uh I, you know, I ended up in a, um, I found my way to a support group, an OCD support group. Um, that was massive for me, meeting other people with OCD and kind of gleaning their advice of how to live with the condition and what it really meant. And I realised a lot of the, the therapy I'd had in years gone by wasn't really the kind of therapy that you need for OCD. And, um, you know, I saw a bunch of psychologists and learned more about it, and learned more about how to how to uh, how to live with it and how to treat it. And uh, you know, it's not totally answering your question, but that's kind of the first couple of years, really, after leaving. Yeah. After, after well, leaving after leaving Kerrang, and then after that, you know, the last couple of years has been me working on this spook projects uh, and still writing uh, freelance a lot. Went to do Green Day for the Guardian in San Francisco, which was quite a cool thing for me. And uh, I did a Radio Four documentary 
last year about Bullseye and the working class, the sort of changing face of the working class in Britain. And like doing more and more things that were beyond music. Like I wrote about true crime a lot and um, started making loads of podcasts under the Spook banner. So, you know, I'm super busy, but really like, you know, the last four years has been the story of me kind of working out what my life looks like as someone with OCD. Right. Well, I'm going to touch on that anyway. The, the OCD, I mean, I've listened to you. I've listened to your, your podcast about OCD. I listened to you on another podcast. I think it was 22 Grand Pod or something, one, one of the ones anyway. And that's, yeah. that's where I heard about your struggles with OCD. Now, a lot of people don't understand what OCD is. They just think it's, oh, well, his house might be tidy or whatever, things like that. So there's a lot of kind of um, ignorance to it. Yeah. My little boy, he's... Um, my little boy's autistic, so you get the, the kind of ignorance towards that. And it's the same with kind of Tourette's and all these sort of things because people don't understand them. So um, could you just maybe kind of get, give us an insight into some of your struggles with it, kind of getting to a point where you upset yourself or anything like that? But... Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I, I mean, to be honest, like, I'm very... Um... As far as mental illness goes, OCD is very different to like a lot of other mental illnesses because um, someone actually kind of summed this up for me recently and they were saying how with a lot of mental illnesses, like you don't know that you are being mad, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But with OCD, you know that you are being mad. That's kind of almost like the cruelty of it. Um, and... You know, you've just mentioned those things that uh, you've just mentioned Tourette's, or you've mentioned like autism. They're like conditions that are seen often in conjunction with OCD. Like through my support group, I've met people with Tourette's, or um, you know, people who are autistic, uh, and that's been an education for me as well. I, I think with um, you, you know, I'm I'm a guy from Yorkshire, right? I mean, I'm quite like I'm quite emotional. You know, I'm quite uh, I think I'm pretty good at communicating how I feel, but ultimately it's a place that we didn't really talk about this stuff, you know, yeah. uh, or, or my generation didn't. And, uh, you know, for me, I'm a bit of a cautionary tale really in that I probably had my first kind of OCD theme, like, you know, we call them themes. That's the, th- you know, the kind of main things we kind of obsess about. I kind of had that probably when I was about 14, 15 really. And, you know, didn't realise that's what it was until a lot a lot later. But really my big one was when I was nineteen and I was at university and I basically just decided one day that I had AIDS. Uh, and there was no there was no logical reason to think that, but it was all I could think about for a year. Um until I kind of went on medication. And even then, you know, they put me on medication but they they didn't tell me it was O C D, but looking back it was really obvious that it was OCD it was all I thought about I just went for AIDS tests like you know six times a year or however many I could however many I could kind of get in 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 the, in the times that you were kind of allowed to go for them and you know just it was just hell you know it was just all I thought about um 
And from that point on, just had lots of that stuff in my life, like different themes that, you know, really kind of came close to just sort of, uh, well, ruining my life, really, you know. But yeah. at, the, at the same time, I'm, I don't know, I'm quite a sort of stoic person. Um, you know, I think people have got it a lot worse than me. Uh, I think there's people with OCD that have got it a lot worse than me. And I was always kind of super ambitious as well. And, um, you know, didn't want, I, 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 I wanted to live an interesting life and I wanted to, um, you know, do, I wanted to follow my, you know, ambitions and dreams and, you know, working in music and writing about music and being a writer and making things, you know, is, is, is that really, you know? So I just think that when things got bad kind of four years ago or so, it was, um, it was, there was a lot of kind of extreme things that kind of came together to kind of make that happen. And that kind of forced me to be like, okay, well, I, I have this, um, I, I, you know, I have this. How can I? How can I live the most healthy life that I I can? You know, it like almost like how can I still be super productive and creative and make things, but also you know how how can I can't just treat this like it's not there. Um, Did you? But I mean, away in see when it became worse and you started kind of progressing to that extent, do you think? In some way, well, that I, helped you because then you were able to say, no, I need to tackle this, I need to deal with it and people need to be aware that I've got it and stuff like that. I mean, no, not really. I, I think that when I, I think with OCD, it gets more complicated and right. difficult to treat the longer it goes untreated. I mean, I can't, you know, as a journalist, I feel like I want to quantify that with more than just anecdotal um more than just kind of you know my experience you know but i can't quantify that but that, that's my gut belief like i feel like when i was having my stuff when i was 19 i feel like if i'd got into it then and had the right treatment i think that I, it would have saved me a lot of a lot of difficulty uh, you know when i was at the enemy i uh and no one knew no, no one knew about this till years later and even now like I mean, you know, if they listen to this, they'll know, but it's not like I've really kind of told people this. But, right. you know, I'd sometimes be in the office till one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning because I'd got it in my head that I needed to touch every desk in the office three times before I left. Like, and then I'd sort of, I'd be going around the office and touching touching people's desks and, and then I'd forget and, or like a cleaner had come in and I'd be embarrassed. So, like, I'd stop and then I'd forget where I was and, and I guess you were saying about OCD being misunderstood and it's a bit of a kind of cause of mine. It's the reason why I did, you know, my OCD podcast, OCD Chronicles, and I'm writing a book about basically being a music journalist with OCD at the moment. And, um, you know, I think it's, um, I don't really, you know, I'm not huge on kind of being preachy, but I think it's, it almost feels like a bit of a responsibility, you know, as someone who, has OCD and has seen the very worst of it and has to a degree some kind of platform. It almost feels like a duty that I should talk about it and try yeah. to help people if I can, because it is it's just an horrendous disorder. And I guess this is my cautionary tale. Like when I was like 
28. So this is 2008. So like right in the heart of my, I was featured as Elliot Enemy. I mean, I was really to all extent sort of like living the dream, but I, uh, I, it, I wasn't right. Like I was having the most insane thoughts that I couldn't shake. And I was just super paranoid and like, you know, I don't know. Without, you know, it's, there's no, if anyone wants to know the content of that stuff, it was horrible and it's it's all over my podcast. But I uh, went to the doctors and they did diagnose me with OCD at that point. Really? And at a really good um, place called CADAT in Camberwell in South London, which is like a an amazing institution for anxiety disorders and other kind of mental health disorders. And um, they... They diagnosed me with OCD, and I basically rejected that because uh, I was like, "Well, I don't have OCD. Like, you should see my flat; it's so messy. Like, yeah. you know, I, I don't wash my hands, you know, <laughs> 20, twenty times a day or whatever. Like that. That isn't. I I don't have OCD because what I'd seen as OCD in films or written about or just it being." Like a punchline in yeah. uh, to a jo- to a joke that I had heard or whatever, it, that was enough to make me kind of not carry on with the really good treatment that was in front of me. And and there's definitely things that for for sort of ten years on from that, there's things. I mean, you know, my experience at Kerrang as an editor was totally uh, totally hindered by by my OCD. You know, like I think to. to to the outside looking in, you know, a lot of people think I did a really good job, but it was kind of a living hell because of the OCD. And I, I often kind of think, oh well, you know, if I'd if I'd got into that treatment in two thousand and eight, um, I could have avoided a lot, of that, a lot of that stuff. And I think that's the reason why I talk about OCD so much now, because you know, if yeah. um, you know, if, if someone on Etsy is selling Christmas cards, you know, that say. Oh, obsessive Christmas disorder, I think that stuff's important to call out because not to be mean to the people who make that stuff, but it's that kind of thing that made me not em- embrace my diagnosis and get the help. Because cause here's the thing that's really important to know about OCD is that the treatment does work. You know, it's not like one of those kind of, it's not like an illness where there's no cure for it. I mean, I don't think there is a cure for OCD, but there's certainly a way to like make to s- severely reduce the suffering. You know, yeah. the treatment the treatment works. And anyway, sort of gone off on a bit of a tangent there, but I guess that's uh, that's covered most of it. Yeah, I mean, it must be exhausting. Just if if you're carrying around all these um, themes in your head and nobody else knows about it, and you don't want to tell them. It must just kind of be so overwhelming and so hard to deal with. Yeah, man, exhausting's the 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 word, you know. It's uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's 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 crazy, you know. I I I have a really supportive wife. Um, we've been together for God, I think this year's nine years. Mm. Um, you know, she made a real effort when we first got together to learn more about it and in lots of places she was the one who was pushing me to learn more about it and her kind of explaining more about how it worked um 
or you know how the brain didn't work is probably a better way of putting it and you know she understands now when i'm when i'm kind of having an episode you know she'll be like you're tired you know that's a big thing is you're tired because you've been in this for a couple of days and but it is you know it is like you know you, you the pandemic has been a really weird experience for me to be honest because it you know i've kind of been quite isolated as we all have been at various times and actually i went to and because of that that's meant that i haven't had to kind of face a lot of the things i find very difficult i find um you know i'm quite a social person so it's very frustrating that this is a thing you know but i find it very difficult kind of being around lots of people um you know so things like the enemy awards or um introducing the kerrang awards or uh, backstage at festivals or you know all of these things that like, sound amazing like i used to find those things so hard because i would be thinking like 10 things at once and if i would meet yeah. someone i would be trying to read their face and what do what do various kind of facial gestures mean beyond what they're actually saying and i went to uh, my wife manages we are scientists yeah. and i went to a we are scientists gig like when they it was like a first gig in London for two years and went, you know, I was at the after show and saw a load of mates and people I hadn't seen for a long time. And I came home and I was just in such a, I was in such a state because I, my brain was just so wiped by the experience of it. And things like that in my twenties were just, you know, it was like every night. It was just all the time. So, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing well, you know, when, it, when I get my radio four podcast commissioned and, you know, when I'm in the, a newspaper that I always wanted to write for, or even just, you know, when me and my wife are like, you know, chilling on the sofa, all of those things are things that just seemed impossible four years ago. So, um, I, I like to see myself as almost sort of not a OCD sufferer, but more of a sort of OCD survivor you know without wanting to be too sort of yeah quaint about it you know no that's that's a really nice way of putting that and obviously as i say i've listened to two or three episodes of the podcast and it's it's really insightful and helpful obviously for people like myself that had no understanding it but i mean for what it must give other people that suffer with ocd must be amazing for them well, i i appreciate that i to be honest that podcast because there's kind of three that i've kind of got three in kind of circulation at the moment uh it's been more at various of other points of other points of podcast the james mcmahon music podcast uh-huh. uh, i do a podcast called shame which is basically about like the emotion that is shame um which is a big you know sort of big byproduct of ocd and and I do the OCD Chronicles, and to be honest, Shame and my music podcast have been so kind of active recently that uh, I, I have to say I've probably neglected uh, the OCD Chronicles a bit. So maybe your kind words will be the impetus for me to go and get the uh, the third season that I've been threatening sorted. So, well, I mean, yeah, you lasted the podcast. You get you get so many minutes. Uh, I don't know where you find the time. I struggle to find the time to do this one, and you've got 
you, you did mention having kids. I'm sure that kids is you know that's a that's a commitment, isn't it? I don't I don't have kids. I've just got two guinea, I've just got two guinea pigs that I have to clean out once a week. But I don't know, you know. I mean, I just I just work really hard, you know. I'm in a couple of bands. Uh, I draw, so I kind of make comics and things. Obviously, I you know all the time writing a book. I just you know, if there is any upside to OCD, it's actually that sort of sometimes a little bit like the fuel in the tank, you know, like it's almost kind of like a, a desire not to kind of be lost to it. It almost kind of drives me on sometimes. So, and, and obviously being a freelance journalist, you know, it's also, you know, needing to make sure that I'm making money so that I can pay the mortgage. So, you know, I don't know. We, you know, we, we do what we do, you know, we, we do what we can. So, I um, mean, touching on the podcast, there was another one. You did a football one as well, didn't you? Yeah, can we not knock it? Yeah. I'm not sure if I've heard it. I'm not, I don't think I have. But what, it's today with England, is it? Is it today with Graham Taylor? Well, I'm, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to presume you're a Scotland fan, right? Yeah, but don't, don't get me wrong. I, I, listen, I listen to Mace football podcasts as well, so I'm not... I'm no, Totally ignorant to yeah. yeah, it was just something that me and it was just something that me and my friends did during the Euros. Uh you know, I'm very keen on the idea of just doing podcasts that, you know, run for a couple of months, you know, that are themed around things. Like I find that really fun and I guess just during lockdown when the uh well not lockdown, but you know, during the a bit more of the kind of heart of the pandemic, um when uh, when the Euros were on, it was just kind of a way to connect with my mates, you know, a couple of times a week, who were all kind of scattered around the country and have kids and, you know, various other commitments. So it was like, you know, we'd get we'd get online for an hour after the games or as a preview or whatever and, you know, talk about what was a pretty good tournament for England, you know. So um but no, it was it was it was fun doing that. We we sort of um and ahhing about maybe revisiting it for the World Cup, but um because there was quite a lot of people who listened to it, you know, and I think that, you know, it'd be different doing it now because you'd be starting with an audience, but yeah, I'm, I, I don't quite know how I feel about this World Cup, you know. It's it's, uh, a, it's, a, it's a weird time of the year as well, which I don't think there's as much interest in it as a football fan. Like, I, I kind of, I'd rather Scotland didn't get to the World Cup because I'm a Celtic fan and we could do half our team away yeah. mid-season. Yeah. It's, it's mental. It's mind-boggling how the authorities have come up with this. I mean, yeah, we were just talking about things that were wrong with music, you know. like I feel I, I feel the same about football in many ways. Like, you know, the game of football is amazing. You know, it's like the best game ever invented, but yeah. everything else is just messed up, you know, whether yeah. it's... Uh, you know, I don't want to sound like my dad. You know, whenever I try to talk to my dad about football, it's always like, "Oh, money ruined it." You know what I mean? But like, it's yeah. it's it's not as simple as that. It's it's just there's so many people involved with football who seem to not particularly like, yeah, or, well, seem it, to not seem to not understand what is essentially brilliant about football. You know, yeah. So it's so you know this that, that's what I mean about being not being sure about this World Cup and whether we'll re- revisit the podcast because. It's just there's so much that's wrong about this World Cup. Like, you know, I, I felt like that to a degree in Russia, you know, like 
you know, someone who you know cares a lot about gay rights and things like that, and you know, I just think that there's something unbelievably hypocritical about footballers like wearing rain, you know, rainbow laces, which is you know, it's a gesture, is you know, it's pretty cool, but and then kind of like going and playing in Russia that where, yeah, you know, their stance on LGBTQ rights is so is so abhorrent, you know. So I don't know, football. I feel like. I went. I went to watch uh, a, a ground hop, you know. So I go to, I go to a lot of grounds that isn't right. that, that isn't my own team, you know. Uh, I support Doncaster uh, for my sins, and I live in Leighton in East London. So I sometimes go watch Orient, and I've got uh, a, no, a local non-league team called Walthamstow that I'm a you know big big supporter of. But I will often go and watch games at grounds that aren't my teams because I just enjoy going to football grounds. And just before Christmas, I went to see Peniston. Play in the uh, in the Peak District, and it was this bonkers game. Uh, God, I should remember they were playing. They were playing like the non-league team from Mansfield, I think. And it was like it was proper jumpers for goalpost stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, and it was really foggy, and the game got called off with eight with eight minutes to go because the floodlights <laughs> failed, and you know where I was stood, like I couldn't see either goal at one point. Like it was that foggy. And like for me, like that's football. Um, so it, you know everything that's brilliant about it still exists, but it's the same, man. There's just so many rotters involved with it. Yeah, I mean that. I wrote in my. I, I've kind of thought a few times about going to see my. It's like a junior team, which the, the juniors up here is kind of like a equivalent to non-league down south. So I mean, I, I've got a local team. Um, about ten minutes walk for me, and right. I, I've I've kind of thought about going to see them because you're kind of money aspects taking it, and it's just all about supporting my team. I will say this though: I was saying this to my wife last night that I, I I've been to Celtic. Um, I, I I've never had an experience like that at football because, you know, my team don't play in front of however many thousand people. You know, like we're lucky if we get five but it was it was amazing like i like i i do think that that stuff i do think football at that level really is important and as a place and is an amazing experience i just think that but you know i think that sounds like a different you know like it's a, it's a religion in it yeah um i have to say i don't know whether you'll think less of me for this but my my scottish team are, are dundee um, well, no, that's 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 not so bad i thought you were going to say the other team <laughs> no, not the other, not the other ones. If it, to be honest, if I have a team in 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 Glasgow, it's probably Partick Thistle. Right. I went to, I went to see them play a couple of times, and I've got a mate in Glasgow, and when I would visit, we'd, we'd go down there. But no, I went to I used to DJ a lot, uh, and I went to DJ. I used to DJ a lot in Dundee, which is weird. But I got to Dundee and I DJ, and I remember the first time I went up there, I was thinking, oh, I wonder if I can grab a game on the way home or. You know, if I can catch a game while I'm up here, and it was the day of the there was a Dundee derby, right. and I remember I remember DJing and thinking, oh, when I'm going to get a ticket because it was all you know all ticket, and um, I mentioned it you know when I was DJing, and there were people there were people at this club where I was DJing that were literally, it was almost like I felt like I was some kind of Roman emperor, you know, and they were coming to me with tickets, <laughs> like almost kind of competing for my fandom you know people would be like oh you know 
uh, do you want a drink? Oh, you should follow Dundee United and other people being like, oh, you're coming for a kebab on the way home. You should, you should follow Dundee. And then I, in the end, I just thought, well, you know, Dundee is sort of the, I don't know, they're the, uh, I don't know. I, I knew that Dundee United were like the, the cooler choice. So I went with, with, with Dundee. I, lo- I, I love, I mean, I've only seen them play probably four or five times, but, um, I always look out for Dundee all the time. So, well, there you go, Dundee and Doncaster. A funny, I've got a story actually. The boy from One Direction is it Louis Tomlinson? He's a Doncaster fan, isn't he? He is, yeah, he is. He he, he he used to sell um, he used to sell hot dogs at the ground when I was a kid, and and he he would have been even younger than me, but I I definitely have memories of him in the in the fast food stand. In fact, actually, there was a talk at one point of him taking over the club and uh, or being part of a consortium to take over the club. And I, I wrote about it for the Daily Mirror. And uh, he followed me on Twitter and retweeted the story. And this was probably like six, seven years ago. And I don't know whether you have this with Twitter. Like, um, Sometimes you will have someone liking a tweet or retweeting a tweet from five, six years ago, and you're like, I wonder how that's happened. But I can confidently say that even now, every day, there'll be someone who still likes the tweet that Louis Tomlinson retweeted. I can't even imagine what kind of, that kind of fame. It must be absolutely bonkers. Well, that's the thing. So we went to, there was a charity game, a Celtic charity game. Um, I don't know if you can remember uh, Stelian Petrov, he played, yeah. he played for Aston Villa. Yeah. Um, obviously, he played for us for, he was a legend with us. And you know, we'd done a charity game for him with his cancer, his leukemia. Yeah. Um, so it was like a team of kind of ex players and celebrities. And Louis Tomlinson played in that game at Celtic Park. And right. it, it was packed out, right? But there must have been about 15,000. We lasses, one direction fans that were only there to see him. And yeah. I can't even mind what player it was. Somebody halved him in two and see the screams for the fans. It was unbearable. It was like being at a one direction gig. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think I've seen I, I think I think I've seen it on YouTube actually. <laughs> I mean he he uh I saw him play as well for uh, a testimonial for James Coppinger, who's like the best Orient. Yeah, sorry, God, the best Rovers player ever. This is what happens when you have affections for more than one club. Yeah. Uh, James Coppinger, he's like my favourite Doncaster Rovers player ever. Played with us for, you know, retired last season. Played with us for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of games. Um, with us for almost twenty years, and his testimonial, James Coppinger turned out, and it was also sort of like Rovers legend. So it was all these kind of faces from the past that Coppinger had, you know, shared a pitch with and. Like one half of the ground was just like One Direction fans screaming, and it was so. I just kept thinking what it must be like to be someone like Leo Fortune West, you know, like a bit of a journeyman who played for us, just and had played for us at various points when 800, 900 people were coming to watch us. What it must have been like just hearing pubescent girls screaming, yeah, you know, it must have just been bonkers. And he, um, yeah, it was. It was weird. I was. I was commentating for like the website. Me and a friend of mine, because I, I write for the 
the Doncaster Rovers fanzine, two-time um, award-winning Doncaster Rovers fanzine, popular stand, and we were we were commentating, and it was just at, at times we just couldn't hear ourselves. It was crazy. What? It was just a crazy time, crazy time. I actually now now that he's not quite as sort of famous, you know, sort of as prominent, you know, sort of in the in the discourse. Um, I think the the people who run the social media channels of Rovers are quite relieved in a way because you know there was a, there was a period of time where every time they like tweeted like a match result or something, the comments would just be One Direction fans being like. I love you, Louis. It's crazy, just crazy, crazy time. Yeah, uh, it's, it's it's got a funny way of doing that in it. Football and and stuff like that. It's kind of people get obsessed. Um, mm. So I mean, that's us towards the end of the interview. Um, obviously, I'll cool, share all your, I'll share all your, I'll share your link to you, and people can find all your podcasts and stuff like that. But obviously, before we. Before we go, obviously, um, I should pick four heroes to come for dinner and explain why, explain what you're going to make them for dinner. So, as as you're saying this, I've just remembered that yes, you did ask me to do that, but I, I can I'll I'll riff off my off the. the I should uh, have reminded you at the start. No, it's fine. It's fine. I I I, I can do it. There's plenty of people I admire, so I would probably say. There's a journalist called John Ronson. I don't know whether you're aware of him, but he uh, he writes about um, he writes about people. He writes about people. He's a journalist. He writes about people, and he sometimes writes about complicated and difficult people. He writes about conspiracy theorists, or he writes about uh, people who've been shamed on the internet. He wrote an amazing book called "So You've Been Publicly Shamed." Um, he's interviewed psychopaths and. You know, rather than sort of just dismiss psychopaths as terrible people, it's try to understand, you know, um, uh, kind of what makes uh-huh. people do the things that they do. And he's a real hero of mine. I've just interviewed him for my Shane podcast, actually. Uh, I don't know when, when this is getting published, but um, that interview goes live on uh, January 25th. You'll be able to listen to it, even if this goes out later than that. Yeah. So, yeah, John Ronson, he, he would be one. Um I'd probably say Graham Coxon, who was my absolute hero when I was growing up. Um, made me want to be in a band and made me want to play guitar. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm cheating a bit, actually, because these are actually people that I, I have met. Um, but, yeah, they, they would be there. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a writer called Gordon Byrne, um, who is probably my favourite writer ever. Writes a lot about true crime. Sadly, he's not with us anymore. He passed away, but he is like when I read his stuff, he, you know, I would, I, I aspire to be the writer that that he was. So if there was a way of you know bringing him back from the dead, then I would love to bring him back. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say Eric Cantona because That's I don't really have to, I don't really have to explain that one really, do I? Yeah. Um, they are great choices again. Obviously, Chant and I and Cox and are brilliant, and I'm, I'm going to go and check out the other two. Yeah, um, I do. What would you cook for them? Are you a good cook? Oh, no, I'm shit. Without, <laughs> without my wife, I would starve. Um, I don't eat meat, so, and I've just discovered 
this amazing um sounds like a contradiction in terms actually these words i'm going to put together but there's uh, this amazing vegetarian bacon that we've discovered recently uh which for years the idea of there being good vegetarian bacon just seemed impossible but thanks to the wonders of science there's, there's a really good bacon substitute now so i would probably make kind of vegetarian bacon sandwiches for them all um and they will be they'll they'll be happy with it or that you know or, or tough shit <laughs> yeah that sounds that sounds brilliant i'm gonna try the vegetarian bacon where can you get that <laughs> well when i'm off when we're when we're off here i'll, I'll send you some links to uh uh Gordon Byrne, John Ronson, and where to get good vegetarian bacon from. So, yeah, it's been uh, been very nice speaking to you, man. Yeah, it's been brilliant. Thanks very much for coming on. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. If you would like to get in touch, the best way is on the Facebook page, Time for Heroes podcast or on Instagram at Time for Heroes Podcast, or Twitter at Time for Heroes P1, or drop me an email at Time for Heroes Pod at gmail.com. You'll find Time for Heroes on all podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple, Google, and Amazon. Please leave a review where you can share with others and more importantly, enjoy.